Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. an email that I have been carrying around in my Bible for about four weeks, thinking that at some point I might share it with you all. And then the events of the last couple of days converge together in such a way that the email makes sense. So let me tell you what's going on. Uh, Why do we do what we do? Why do we spend so much time working on theology. Why do we spend so much time in what Paul calls sound doctrine? Why do we continue to hammer away at the Bible and thus saith the Lord? Why is that such a priority to us? Well, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just so that we have bragging rights and can say, well, we're a smart church and we know some stuff. I love the history of the Bible. I love the eschatology of the Bible. I love all of the deep theology and all the doctrine of the Bible. But as you go through human life, there will be events. There will be things that are going to happen where you need something to hang on to, something more than than just the flummery of everyday life the falderall and the nonsense that makes up everyday life, you need something substantial to get you through the tragic times and the difficult periods of life. And you have to learn that stuff. You have to learn your doctrine and your theology during the calm periods so that when the storm whips up, you have something to hang on to. And that's why... We spend so much time trying to plant sound theology and a good uh, biblical worldview as well as a knowledge of who God is and what God is like. For instance, the more you read about his faithfulness to Israel, the more you see that he is in control of human history in such a way that the outcome will be for the good of his people. And you see that week after week after week in what we've been reading out of all the Old Testament, but particularly Hosea here recently. And hopefully that gives you something to cling to when the trouble comes and you you need a life raft. Well, then you can remember, but God was always good to Israel and always faithful to them. So then I trust that he's going to be good and faithful to me. And that even though Israel went through phenomenal difficulties and troubles, nevertheless, God never abandoned them or gave up on them. So I had a conversation about that very thing today. Uh, There is a pastor in Chattanooga who is the head of the Sovereign Grace Bible Conference. His name is Greg Spots. He took over after Elder Ward died. Greg Spots has a twin brother whose name is Gary. I've known Gary for a good number of years now. We've become good friends through the years. Gary has twins, 23-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. 
this past Saturday night, his son was shot dead in what appears to have been a robbery gone wrong. He was in his car, and he was found in his car shot dead. I talked to Gary today, and we both talked about this very thing. We agreed in the course of our conversation that the knowledge of a sovereign God, the knowledge of a God who knows what he's doing and does all things ultimately for our good and his glory is, uh, is really the only thing that's keeping Gary standing upright at this moment. He said, if I didn't know that, what would I do? I'd, I'd go wild. This is too much for a person to stand, to have your child ripped away from you that unexpectedly. And that is why we do what we do. That is why I keep teaching the details of biblical theology. And that is why we keep digging in. We do it so that when the rubber does meet the proverbial road, when life throws you a curveball you just didn't see coming, that you're not left completely adrift that you do have something substantial that you can cling to and hold on to when all the world seems genuinely out of control, when the world seems really insane. It's easy to look at the news and hear about the violence in the Middle East, say, wow, it's a violent world. <coughs> or it's easy to see the stuff that's going on right now in San Bernardino, you know, yet another mass shooting. Say, wow, the world is a violent place. But even then, as you view it from a distance, as an audience, it's still separate from you. It's still happening over there. But when it gets this close, when it's family, when it's your child, well, what are you going to cling to? What are you going to hang on to? Where are you going to find any comfort, any peace, or any hope? At the end of the phone call, I said to Gary, you know, I called hoping that I could be some kind of comfort to you, just friend to friend, and you actually blessed me. His testimony of his confidence and faith in God, even in these terrible events, was a witness and a testimony to me and made me feel very fortunate again that I know people of that level of faith that I am friends with somebody who has that kind of commitment to the things of God, that even in the face of this sort of trial is willing to still say God is on his throne doing whatever pleases him. And we both agreed that you know, this life is fleeting, this life is passing, this is a violent and a sinful place. And we are still here among the people who are dying and every day we hear about death and dying. But uh, Gary and I were happy to extol the virtues of God among the ever-living. Because the day is coming when we're going to leave here, some of us sooner than others, some of us unexpectedly. But we're all leaving. And to be able to know, like in Gary's case, that his son had made such a defense of the Christian faith, that he knew confidently that this Saturday when the funeral is, they're calling it a home-going service because he is confident that he'll see his son again. 
Well, there's just so much peace in that in the midst of just horrific tragedy. So anyway, I have this email I've been carrying around from one of our online listeners. And I'll skip some parts of it that are overly complimentary to me. But he says, hi, Jim. I wanted to share how much your teaching, which is scripture truly all the way, has impacted me. I've known for a long time that there was a way to connect the way scripture flows from Genesis to Revelation. I've read so many books on parts of scripture, never knowing how it all connects, like studying a jigsaw puzzle in which you are really familiar with a great number of the pieces, but you cannot find out how to connect or put them in proper places. Pastors continually preach, as it were, on each of these individual pieces, neglecting the interconnecting of all the other parts, or just ignoring those parts altogether. Many will preach or teach on a certain way to put the puzzle together, ignoring the picture on the box because the box picture doesn't fit their system, again causing great confusion if you haven't seen the picture on the box. Some focus on parts of the gospel, parts of scripture to make certain points, but overlooking the continuity and the certainty of what the entire puzzle looks like. But as you have so ably by the Holy Spirit's power sat there and placed part after part into place for me, as I knew that they must be, but could not have done it for myself because of the confusion of these who were misleading me. You've been given a great gift, one that I treasure daily. The whole picture is stunning and vibrant and awesome as it displays God's involvement with his people, sending his son and his spirit to enable the chosen ones to survive and thrive in this hostile environment of the world. You have enabled me to read with much greater understanding and cohesion of all the elements involved not just looking at the whole picture as an assemblage of pieces that I have to put together. I no longer need to study all those books searching for missing pieces or teachers who mislead and misinterpret what each piece means. Some zero in on one piece and never get the whole picture, but what a relief. And it is so very satisfying to my soul and to my sharing the gospel with others to have this overall understanding that Jesus by his spirit, has enabled here in his gospel. Your presentation is a real treat, your understanding, your examples, drilling into the essence of a passage and how it relates in context to the other pieces that are contained all over scripture. And you've enabled me now to find those links. I'm reading this to you because of the next paragraph. My wife, then he gives me her name, just had major surgery at Duke Hospital in North Carolina. The knowledge of scripture has given me a new perspective on suffering, servanthood, joy in the spiritual lifestyle, not only of my own, but so many others. I am nothing. Christ is everything. Christ is the entirety of my life now. I no longer have any significant interest in achieving worldly recognition or the value of the world's goods and the world's promises are fading drastically in the light of Christ and his word. I'm so glad that Christ has freed me from the slavery of things and personal achievement 
and being somebody in this world and has turned my rudder toward the kingdom of God in all things. And I want to grow more bold in sharing and giving God glory in all things. I wish I could articulate the value I have received from your dedication to do what God has called you to do. And then he says some more nice things. Uh, that right there, that his wife had surgery, and yet he was able in the midst of all that to realize through the knowledge of Scripture that God is doing all these things. He's got these things handled. It was a perfect example of what I've been saying. You teach people sound doctrine during the calm so that when the storm hits, they already have something to hold on to. It's really difficult to do sound doctrine and theology in the midst of the storm. You got to have the life preserver before the storm hits. It's tempting when people are going through a terrible struggle. It's tempting to want to say something to them like, all things are working together for good. When in fact what they need is somebody to just hold on to them and just let them cry and just get through it. But if you can give them something to hold on to before the storm, then they'll get through the storm much better. And that, Tom, (laughs) is why we do what we do. I just happened to be looking into Tom's eyes when I said that. But that's why we do what we do. That is a good email, isn't it? One of my favorite parts of the email, by the way, is that his signature, his electronic signature, on his emails is a quote from Spurgeon, which I like. means everybody he writes to ends up with a Spurgeon quote. you got to like that. But here's the Spurgeon quote. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Isn't that a good quote? Here. Put that on your emails. There you go. So that is all kind of what occurred today and what fell out today. Do be praying for Gary Spots and his family. And... uh, you know, at the end of the phone call, we agreed the judge of all the earth will do right and that his grace is sufficient, even in times like these. And like I said, he ministered to me as much as I attempted to minister to him because that's how the people of God are. And it's a remarkable and a magnificent thing to watch. All right. We're in Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12 is yet again God explaining his case against Israel. In this chapter, he's going to include that he also has a dispute with Judah, which is an indication, again, that the prophecy of Hosea, the things that Hosea is saying, have to do with the northern tribes, the house of Israel in particular. But he also has a case to make against Judah because his case ultimately is against Jacob. And because his case is 
is about all 12 tribes, all the descendants of Jacob, he actually at this point reaches back into the Genesis account and repeats some of the key points of the history of Jacob, the progenitor of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I have learned the hard way over the years not to just assume that people know stuff. We taught through the book of Genesis years ago, and so I have a tendency to think, well, people will just know these references. We'll just read these references. Hosea just throws these things out, and I just sort of assume that people know them, but I've learned over the years to not assume that. So we'll be spending a fair amount of time in Genesis tonight, too. If you know these stories, and you certainly should, uh, the reminder won't be bad, and the reminder will also be in the context again of God making his case now against Israel, because what he's reminding them of is how Jacob himself was heel catcher, supplanter. That's what the name Yaakov means. He was in so many ways a sinner, and then it was God who encountered Jacob, who came to Jacob. It was God who then changed Jacob's name and destiny. It was God who gave him the positive name Israel. And in much the same way, Hosea is saying, now Israel nationally, you are Jacob. This is something that you see a lot in the Old Testament, that when God wants to remind national Israel of who they were initially, he'll call them by that name, Jacob. Oftentimes when he's expressing his love for them, he'll call them Israel, prince that has power with God. Some interpreters say that it means one who wrestled with God and prevailed. And in either case, it's, it's a pretty positive name. National Israel is kind of going through what the progenitor went through, which is they started out, God found them, God changed them, God redeemed them, God drew them, and then ultimately it was God's commitment to Jacob and promises made to Jacob that we'll look at tonight that are the reason that Israel nationally still has faith and confidence that God is going to restore them, and all the prophets continue to say it because this is reaching all the way back to the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers. So the promises that God has made, the covenants that God made to the forefathers are the sure foundation and guarantee of national Israel's eventual restoration, regathering, and being planted back in their land. And so God reaches back, and I like that God does this. He reaches back to his own word and to his own history and his own interactions with Jacob himself and says, remember this, points via Hosea, points to Jacob for national Israel and says, remember how you began. Remember how I found you. Remember the promises I made. And it's all part and parcel of the big Hosea panorama of God's dealings with national Israel from the time that he made the promises to the forefathers all the way out to the promises of ultimate restoration. So that's chapter 12. So let's dig in. You might recall back in chapter 8, this phrase was used that Israel sows the wind. Chapter 8, verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The idea being that there is a vanity to what they're doing. 
that even though they plant, they're not going to grow anything. There's not going to be any heads on the stalks. There's not going to be any food because God in his punishment is going to bring famine on them as part of his correction of them. So chapter 12, verse 1, returns to that theme of the futility of their actions and says, Ephraim feeds on wind. In other words, they just feed on futility, on nothingness. Wind is unsubstantial. You can't go out and grab a big chunk of wind, you know, bring it in for us. Go do that for us, would you, Thad? Run outside. Grab us a chunk of wind. Get a box. Get a box of wind. There's a futility to try to either plant or harvest or, or deal with the wind. The wind lists where it will, does what it's going to do. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. East of Israel takes you right into the Aramean area, into the Assyrian area. So then God is going to be more specific about that. He multiplies lies and violence, and moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. So rather than trusting that the initial promises that God made, when he took them into the land of promise, he said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give you protection from all your enemies round about. I'm even going to take the current residents, the Canaanites, out bit by bit so the wild animals don't overtake you. I mean, God really thought of every aspect of giving them this good land, planting them in that land. And had they trusted God, they would never have had to go make deals in order to secure themselves from Assyria or from Egypt, their two closest enemies that they began trading with and covenanting with just in order to protect themselves, which ultimately did not work. The Assyrians come down on them anyway because they are ultimately enemies. And so God says this is part of their futility. They're making covenants with Assyria and oil they carry down to Egypt. They're trading with Egypt. Verse 2, the Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now, as soon as he uses the term Jacob, that's now collectively all 12 tribes. So it's his way of saying this is about the northern kingdom first off. That's what the Assyrian captivity is about. But I also have words to speak about Judah. I'm going to deal with them too. Don't think that they're off the hook. In fact, in several of the prophecies that we've looked at over the last couple of months, we see that God actually holds Judah as more guilty because Judah saw what God did to the house of Israel. And since they could see what God was willing to do to Israel, they should have changed their ways. But because they actually had firsthand witness and testimony to God's punishment of the northern tribes, and yet they didn't turn away from their foreign idol worship, God holds Judah even more guilty, but at this moment, he's just going to speak to them collectively, all 12 tribes, under the name Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter. I will punish Jacob according to his ways, and he will repay him according to his deeds. Then in verse 3, he just says in passing, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. He's reminding us of why he has that particular name. Genesis 25, 26. Go there. Genesis 25, 26. Turn there. Genesis 25. We'll actually start a little earlier than that. Let's start at verse 22. 
How about verse 21? Let's do that. Genesis 25, 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren and the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called him Esau, which essentially means reddish. And afterwards, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he gave birth to them. Okay, so the name Jacob means heel catcher because his brother came out first. Now, it really mattered which child came out first because the first one born gets the birthright. So that really mattered. So we know the history, and we'll get into a bit of the history tonight, the history of Jacob and Esau. But Esau was born first, and there was such a struggle in the womb to be born first that when Esau came out, his brother was clutching his heel, almost like he was trying to get out first or pull him back. And so they named him the heel catcher. So he had to live with that name the whole rest of his life. What is your name? I'm Bob. Hi, I'm heel catcher. He had to deal with that. I'm a supplanter. And it was a good name because he did ultimately supplant his brother's birthright, both by getting him to give it up for a mess of pottage. That's the King James version of it. Some lentils, some soup. He was eating it. His brother came in from the field, and his brother said, give me some of your lentils to eat because I'm close to death. I think that was the tone of voice he said it in, too, yeah. And his brother says to him, well, give me your birthright. Esau just foolishly thought through the idea and came to the conclusion, well, what good is a birthright if I'm dead and I'm clearly dying? Give me something to eat. And then, of course, you know the story. Having gotten his brother to agree to give him the birthright, he then went in and fooled his dad along with his mother's cooperation. They fooled old blind dad into giving the birthright promise to the younger brother. None of which was a surprise to God, because God said the older is going to serve the younger. And two nations are in your womb. Now the Esauites, of course, went off and joined the Edomites, and to this day they are the Arab nations. And so you've got the descendants of Jacob, who are the Israelites, and you have the descendants of Esau, who are the Arab nations, and they are fighting and competing to this very day. They were fighting in the womb, and they're still fighting. So then the second thing that we read, stay right there in Genesis, the second thing that we read in Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, first in the womb he took his brother by the heel, but then in his maturity he contended with God. Okay, well, this is the place where his name was changed. So the two particular things that God points out through Hosea are how he got his name 
and how his name was changed. That's the essence of what's being pointed out here. Go to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. This is one of, one of the best-known stories in the Old Testament, which is Jacob wrestling with an angel. But you really have to start at chapter 32, verse 1, to know how that came about. Because Jacob, at this point, after having stolen his brother's birthright, has run away and has been living among the Arameans the very people who are about to take Israel into captivity during Hosea's time. While he's there, he meets this guy Laban. He falls in love with Rachel, makes a deal with Laban that he's going to work for Rachel, works for him for seven years. On his wedding night, goes into the tent, wakes up in the morning, finds out it's the wrong daughter because his father-in-law fooled him and didn't want the younger girl married before the older girl he wakes up and finds out that he's married to uh, Leah. Well, Leah has a handmaiden, and Rachel has a handmaiden. And so what happens is he works for Laban another seven years in order to get Rachel, and he ends up with Rachel, Leah, and the two handmaidens. So he ends up with four women over the course of 14 years. But during that time, God also blesses him so that he makes a deal with Laban to uh, divide up the animals which are a sign of wealth. That's kind of the trading commodity. It's also how you stay alive. You use the wool to dress you. You eat the meat. It's a very important part of their economy. And so he takes care of Laban's sheep and makes a deal with him and says, I'll tell you what, let me have the spotted goats, you know, the, the unattractive ones. Anytime there's a goat born and he's spotted or blemished, I'll take that one. Laban says, okay, good deal. I'll keep the good ones and the healthy ones. And, the, and so uh, God ends up increasing the number of spotted goats. And next thing you know, he's more wealthy than Laban. He and Laban kind of <laughs> end up at odds over all this, and he departs. Well, he's heading back to Canaan, but now he's a great company of people. Not only does he have four wives, two wives and two maidens, concubines, he's got at least 11, maybe 12 kids at this point. And, and, and he's got daughters in there, and, so he's, and then he's got his servants, and he's got all this cattle, and he's got, so he's got, he's got this great company of people, and he's heading toward Canaan when he hears that his brother's coming out to meet him. Uh-oh. And so he starts sending gifts ahead of himself to his brother. Starts sending him maidservants, manservants, and sheep, and just sending him clothing, just sending him stuff so that by the time they meet, hopefully he'll have worn his brother down so that they don't end up at odds with each other. That's what chapter 32 is all about, which starts with, now as Jacob went on his way, this is leaving Laban and going to Canaan, the angels of God met him. So it is God who came to him. That's the important part of the story, is that this whole wrestling thing occurred because God came to him. Jacob said when he saw them, the angels of God, apparently a plurality, a large enough plurality that he referred to them as a camp. He said, this is God's camp. So he named the place Ma'anaim, which actually means two camps. 
Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And he also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now, and I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. And then they start sending gifts. Now skip down to, well, once he gets to the place, Jabbok is the name of the place, the stream that he has to ford. And once he goes across there with his own wives and his own children, he'll finally be face to face with Esau. And just before that happens, we pick up at verse 24. And when Jacob was left alone, there was a man who wrestled with him until daybreak. We don't know anything more about it than that other than there was a camp of angels that had come to him. And now, just before he meets Esau, he wrestles all night with a man, who we will find out in a moment is an angel. Some people argue that he's even a Christophany. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. The man, or the angel, touched the socket of Jacob's thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. So then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, here's the form that the blessing takes. He said to him, what is your name? And he had to admit who he was. I'm Jacob. I'm a heel catcher. I'm a supplanter. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, sometimes Penuel, depending on the translation. And he named it that because he said, I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been preserved. Penuel or Peniel means face of God. So he certainly saw it as more than just an angel. He saw it as somebody who had the authority to change his name. And I find it interesting that they wrestled all night. And it says that Jacob prevailed and wouldn't let go of him. And yet with a single touch, the angel put his hip out of joint, which means at any moment he could have just gone, and you're done. He could have just touched him, touched his head, touched his joint. He could put him to sleep. He could have just, bang, you're done. So he wrestled with him all night on purpose. This was all part of the process of God changing him into the man that he was going to become, ultimately changing his name. So in Hosea, God reminds national Israel that Jacob was born heel catcher and supplanter and that he was born grasping on to his brother's heel, which is why he had that name. But then he leaps right from there too and he had his name changed in this instance. So it's all about God having control of Jacob from beginning to end. In the womb knowing him, in the womb saying that he was going to be a nation and that his brother was going to be a nation. And then, of course, later we get into Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? From the beginning, it was God who said that the older was going to serve the younger. From the beginning, God chose the path that the birthright blessing was going to take. 
And so God is reminding Israel here of how they began, how they were formed, and how he dealt with their progenitor. And that the very fact that they carry the name Israel ought to be a reminder to them that God dealt with their progenitor, Jacob, exactly this way. And that he didn't find him or choose him or come to him because he was good. He came to him because he was bad. He came to him because he was a supplanter. He was a heel catcher. But then what did he do? He changed him. He redeemed him. He reformed him. He changed his walk. He changed his name. Changed everything about him. But it doesn't stop there. God continues to remind them of his dealing with Jacob. Verse 4 of chapter 12 of Hosea, he then says... Yes, he wrestled with an angel and he prevailed and he wept and he sought his favor. That was the I won't let go of you until you give me a blessing. And he found him at Bethel. And there he spoke. Interesting use of the plural pronoun. And then he spoke with us. God spoke with Israel when God spoke to Jacob. So what he said to Jacob, he was saying, to Israel. Where do we find that? We'll go to Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, we find the seventh recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. Back when we were teaching through the book of Genesis, and in other places when we have taught on Old and New Covenant, and when we have talked about the Abrahamic covenant, I've gone through the seven places in the book of Genesis where you find God reciting the promises that make up what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And it's passed down generation to generation. Once God lays it out a couple of times for Abraham, he then does the same thing with Isaac and says, I'm going to give you the promise that I gave to your father Abraham. So you see it move to the next generation. And then here in chapter 28 of the book of Genesis is the then seventh recitation of the promise as it moves from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. So God is real specific about this because it takes place at Bethel. So God says, again, just reciting, God says, I was there when Jacob was born. I know why he was called heel catcher, because he was hanging on to his brother's heel. I was there when I changed his name. I was there when he wrestled, and we wrestled through the night. And then he besought me, and I blessed him. And I was there at Bethel, and I talked to him. And when I talked to him, I was talking to all of you. Okay, well, that's important, because what did he say at Bethel to Jacob? that applies to all Israel. Well, it's this. Let's start in verse 10. Genesis 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba, and he went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place, and he spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place, and he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place, and he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. 
oh, this is part of what God said to Israel nationally now. This is a promise given to Jacob, whose name has changed to Israel, and they are Israel nationally, and God reminds them, I spoke at Bethel to Jacob, to all of you. The land on which you're laying, I'll give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the scattering of Israel. They're not just going to stay in the land. I'm going to give you this land, but then you're going to go out north, south, east, west. You're going to go out. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That's part of the Abrahamic promise that probably finds its fulfillment in the coming of Christ and the new covenant that allowed Gentiles, drew Gentiles into covenant with God. All the families of the earth, not just Israelites, are now being blessed through Israel. Hey, Jim, it's interesting that phrase, descending and descending, uh, on the ladder there, it only appears one other time in Scripture, and that's when Jesus meets Nathaniel. And he's like, oh, wow, you knew who, where I was. He must be something. He goes, well, what if you see the angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man? And yeah. Kind of a tie there. Yeah, he makes himself Bethel. Mm -hmm. Because the word Bethel means house of God. And so he makes himself the house of God. Yeah, that's an interesting connection, isn't it? Because you were just saying about blessing all the nations. Right, there's the connection. He's the blessing to all the nations, yeah. Verse 15, and behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, Bethel, and this is the gate of heaven. Okay, so do you see what's happening in Hosea? God is, we have one more, turn to Genesis 35. But God is continuing to remind national Israel of their forefather, their progenitor Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and God is saying, I interacted with him time and again, and I gave him an unconditional promise, the promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this promise belongs to you nationally. Yes, he wrestled with the angel, and he prevailed. He wept, and he sought his favor, and he found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us, even the Lord. The God of hosts, Yahweh, the Lord, is his name. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. I told you to turn to Genesis 35. I want to show you one more thing. Genesis 35, starting right around verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Paran Aram, and he blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come forth from you, and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, 
and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a libation on it, and he also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him Bethel, the house of God. So again, over and over, the promise is very consistent. The Abrahamic covenant, including the land promise, was given to Abraham, given to Isaac, given to Jacob, and God is reminding national Israel here in Hosea 12 that those promises belong to them because he made them to their progenitor, to Jacob, and found Jacob in his heel catcher state and then in grace overwhelmed him and then changed him, changed him physically, changed his name, changed his destiny, changed which way he was going in his life because this was all part of God's grand plan that uh, fulfilled the promise he had made to Abraham that he was going to have children like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the sky, innumerable, uncountable for number, and that they were going to go out through all the world and that through them all the nations, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And so God is reminding Israel in their fallen state, in, in their rebellious state, while they're busy dealing with Egypt and dealing with the Assyrians, God is basically saying to them, who are you? Remember who you are, and remember who I am, and remember our history together. The very first of you, the first one named Israel, I talked to him, and I made promises to him, and I'm still that God. I am even the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his name, says chapter 12, verse 5 of Hosea. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. Then he says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances. In other words, when you would weigh out money in those days, you would use a balance. And one of the 613 rules in the Levitical law has to do with using just weights and just balances. So God says that a person who uses a, a false or an unjust balance does it because he's trying to get rich and he oppresses the poor in doing so. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, so now he's making the comparison with Ephraim, Ephraim said, surely I have become rich and I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. So he's saying not only has Ephraim become unjust, but he's become unjust where he is oppressing people, oppressing the poor, and doing it in a way where he thinks his hands are clean. He doesn't even recognize his own sin. He doesn't even recognize that in his desire to become wealthy, he's making deals with Egypt, he's making deals with Assyrians, and at the same time thinks there's no sin in any of this. So God's calling him out for it. Verse 9. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. And I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed feast. Okay, so there were three times during the calendar year when all the Israelites who could travel had to come to Jerusalem. One of those feasts is called Sukkot. 
the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, and they had to come and live in temporary dwelling places. And God says, and that's what I'm going to do again. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore their feast, and they're going to come back, and they're going to live in tents again, and I'm going to remind them that I am their God. What is really interesting here, in the book of Zechariah, you read about a time that can only be the millennial period to come, during which time all the Gentile nations that fought against Israel are going to have to come up to Israel once a year to keep one particular feast. They have to come and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, which is really interesting. There's no other feast like that that the Gentile nations are going to be required to keep. And so God, in explaining that he is going to restore Israel again, says, I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. He didn't mention the other feasts. He mentioned that one, and then Zechariah picks it up and says, that's going to happen again when Israel is restored, during the reign of Christ on earth. I have also spoken to the prophets. This is something that God just keeps coming back to and keeps saying over and over again. I have spoken to you, and I spoke to you through the prophets. Keep your finger there. We're just going to flip one more time. Go to 2 Chronicles 24. 2 Chronicles chapter 24. This is during the time that the temple's being repaired, and God is one more time saying to Israel, you're not guiltless. You are responsible because I did send you prophets. The same way that Jesus points out that God sent prophets to Israel time and time again and that they did what they wanted with them and they killed them and they punished them and, and Jesus becomes the ultimate prophet who they also end up killing there in Jerusalem. And so the fact that God deigned to send prophets, that he deigned to send men who would carry his word to Israel, ultimately made Israel even more guilty because God did speak to them. And he keeps pointing that out. He keeps bringing it up. He keeps saying, I sent you prophets. Why didn't you listen? Which is why, again, as Jesus is on the planet, he so frequently says, well, what about the law and the prophets? When they come and question him and ask him about various different rules, laws, ideas, he keeps going back to, well, what about the law and the prophets? You have the scripture. What do they say? And, of course, you know that all the Old Testament scripture was written by prophets. And then for 400 years before Jesus came on the planet, no more prophets. God went silent. God stopped talking to Israel. That's the period we call the intertestamental period. And we have books that we sometimes call the apocryphal books, sometimes included in some versions of the Bible. But they're history books. Tobit or First and Second Maccabees or these kind of things. That kind of, pardon me? Some book with an E, A-E-S-D-R-A. Esdras. Esdras. Yeah. yeah one, right? I have a, do have a question about those. I'm sorry. Sure, why not? Books. Were they never considered by the Israelites as scripture? No, and, and there's a reason for that. Okay. And we taught on this during our systematic theology series when we were doing the segment called The Word on the Word, oh. where I was explaining you know, the big structure of the Bible and why we believe it's true. The point is they knew that they were written by prophets. And since they weren't written by the prophets, every other book in the, in the Old Testament has a prophet's 
pedigree connected to it. But then when God stopped talking through the prophets, they kept history books. And they did bind them and keep them as part of their history, but they kept them separate because they understood that they weren't inspired. Okay, so they never, no, but uh, the Israelites and Jews never claimed that those were scripture. Right, right, never claimed that these were inspired books. Okay, so but they were important to them because it was their history books, the same way that the story of our history here in the United States, you know, we keep that history, but we don't say it's inspired. And that's what those books are about. Did the Pope or the Catholic Church at some time consider those inspired books? I don't know if they argued for, that they were inspired, but because they were oftentimes bound with the Old Testament books, they included them. However, among what's called the Apocrypha, you also get like Bell and the Dragon or Judith or you know some of these other books that are just like, whoa, you know, way over there. And some of those books are included in the Catholic Old Testament as well. And the reason that they're not in the Protestant Old Testament version of the Bible is because they don't have that pedigree. They don't have a connection to a historically verifiable prophet of God. Okay, well, that's good because we're at. All right, thank you. You're welcome. So we're in Second Chronicles chapter 24, and God is going to... Oh, did I actually finish what I was saying about... Oh, yeah, so there was 400 years of silence, and then after 400 years... Jesus walks on the planet. First comes John the Baptist. The prophetic flow begins again. John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, moments like the book of Revelation, some of the things that were given to Paul that he called mysteries, things that hadn't been revealed yet. So there's all this new revelation happening under the new covenant. And then right about 94, 96 AD, after John's revelation and, and his gospel are written right around the turn of that first century, and then that's pretty much it. That's the close of the canon, because those are all the people who actually had a direct connection to Jesus. And so once again, God has spoken. And the reason I went through all that was to say, when Jesus was on the planet, he kept pointing at the prophets and what the prophets had said and holding Israel responsible for what the prophets had said. Once the prophets said it, once it was in the scripture, they were responsible to it. And oftentimes the questions they were asking Jesus were already answered in the scripture. And he held them guilty for not knowing it or not appropriately responding to it. And so now we're in the same situation as the church. We've got about 2,000 years, roughly, since the close of the canon of the Bible and God revealing himself through Christ and Christ then sending that message through his apostles and through Paul. And we have that same responsibility to know what's in the Bible. We have that same responsibility to know what the prophets have said. The greatest of the prophets, the very son of God, the chief prophet, has been to the planet and he has spoken. And so we are responsible as people to know what he has said. And there's nobody who's going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know. Because God's going to say, I spoke time and time again through the prophets. So Second Chronicles 24, let's start at verse 17. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and they bowed down to the king and the king listened to them and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served the Asherim and the idols. 
So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt, yet God sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. So here early on in Israel's history, God's response to their rebellion and chasing other gods is that God sent them prophets. And the prophets told them the truth and spoke for God. And even though that phrase, even though the prophets testified against them, told them what you're doing is not right. What you're doing is not pleasing to God. Nevertheless, they wouldn't listen. And similar guilt, of course, is on those who have had interaction with Christ himself, the ultimate prophet, and would not listen. So that takes us to Hosea chapter 12, verse 11. We're nearly done. Well, verse 10. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables stories to explain so is there iniquity in Gilead he keeps bringing up Gilead and he keeps bringing up Gilgal now he wants them to admit it the same way that Jacob had to admit that his name was heel catcher is there iniquity in Gilead surely they are worthless in Gilgal they sacrifice bulls and yet their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of a field. Okay, just real quickly so you understand that this is God being sarcastic. And I like that about God. And it's one of my more godlike qualities. Because God is saying, you know, the requirement for an altar, no man could take a tool to it. It had to be rocks that were then set up and set into a heap that became an altar to sacrifice before God. And so they did that same thing in sacrificing their bulls and their goats to their foreign gods and sacrificing to their golden bull, their golden calf. And God said, their altars have the same quality as a heap of rocks by the side of a road because they furrowed the road. To make a smooth road, you'd go through it and furrow out the rocks and stones. And you'd have a pile of stones by the side of the road. And he said, that's what I think of their altars. They're just piles of worthless stones by the side of the road. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, is the land of the Assyrians. And Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. Okay, so now we're back to the history of Jacob. Yet again, it's exactly what he did. He went into Aram. While he was there, he came in contact with Laban. We already went through that story tonight. While he was there, he worked seven years for a wife. God again reminding them of how it is that they became a nation in the first place. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. Israel, that's Jacob, worked for a wife. And for a wife, he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. That's Moses, who then brought them up out of Egypt. And by a prophet, Israel was kept. So again, God keeps saying, I've done everything to get your attention. From the very beginning, from the way that I chose you, from the way that I named you, from the way that I changed your progenitor to the promises I made, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the way that I brought you out of Egypt by the hand, by the way that I spoke to you through various prophets. It's not like I haven't been communicating. 
It's not like I haven't been clear about what it is I expect from you. And yet, by a prophet you've been kept, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger. So, his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him, and that's why the Assyrian captivity is about to happen. We're going to stop there. Next week, we'll pick up in verse 13. In fact, there's a good likelihood that next time we're together, which will probably be next week, based on what I know of the family schedule, I do intend to be here next Wednesday, all things being equal and, and God wills. And so... We'll probably finish the book next week. We'll probably do chapter 13 and 14 because they are short chapters and it ends on, uh, on that same note of God saying, guilty, guilty, you're just so guilty and I am so faithful and I'm going to keep every promise I made you because these are the promises that I made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God doesn't change. That's chapter 12 of Hosea. All right? Did you learn something? Yes. Was it worth being here? Yes. My son has to say yes. <laughs> There's no option because he wants to eat again. <laughs> Any questions about that? No? All right, good. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.